Elton John, sorry, Sir Elton John, sits alone with his thoughts inside his London home on October 30th of 1993. His thoughts are filled with self-gratitude, some satisfaction, and even a little awe for a life that contains a successful body of musical work and a recent transition from a self-loathing, self-sabotaging, uber-destructive human being to one who truly appreciates what life has to offer. Plus, he has the knowledge that, well, he's just damn lucky to be alive. There were all those drugs after all. If there was a drug out there for Elton to try, you can bet he tried it. The cocaine alone should have killed him. I could try to paint a picture for you, but I think Elton's own words describe those times best. This is how bleak it was. I'd stay up, I'd smoke joints, I'd drink a bottle of Johnny Walker, and then I'd stay up for three days, and then I'd go to sleep for a day and a half, get up, and because I was so hungry, because I hadn't eaten anything, I'd binge, and I'd have like three bacon sandwiches, a pot of ice cream, and then I'd throw up, because I became bulimic. And then I'd go and do the whole thing all over again. And I'm not being flippant when I say that when I look back, I shudder at the behavior and what I was doing to myself. I mean, I would have an epileptic seizure and turn blue, and people would find me on the floor and put me to bed. And then 40 minutes later, I'd be snorting another line. For Elton, thankfully, those days and nights of unfettered, reckless behavior are now behind him. And his life is looking much better, much more stable. Still, something's missing. Something that's been missing his entire life, actually. And that is someone special for him to love. And for that someone special to love him right back. But how the hell does a middle-aged, recovering drug addict, homosexual, musical superstar find someone special that will allow him to finally write his own love story? The answer? He picks up the phone, dials, and sets up a Saturday night dinner party. We could ride the light waves Together ignore all the sound waves How do we get, how do we get so brave? I'm Kevin. I've been happily married and in love with my wife for going on 10 years now. And I love telling real life stories. So I decided to combine these two worlds and create something new that will celebrate love stories like mine. A podcast which highlights what I think are the most moving, most fascinating, and most memorable love stories of all time. Stories that not only teach us about love, but also about ourselves. In this episode, we'll sing the praises of the transcendent marriage and love story of pop icon Sir Elton John and his forever partner, David Furnish. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give it a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. Today's episode is brought to you by amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. And if you're interested in creating your own great love story, schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast for special discounts. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the world's greatest 
Real life love stories. The love story between Sir Elton John and David Furnish is notable not only because of Elton's insurmountable fame and fortune, but also because they're a couple who make each other better, and at the same time, the world a better place. Together, they've helped push the boundaries and legalities of same-sex relationships in the UK and around the world, as well as lead the fight for the rights and well-being of people living with AIDS through a foundation that has donated hundreds of millions of dollars to the cause. But what I think makes their story so powerful is that it breaks so many stereotypes and preconceived notions about homosexual relationships, how they are constructed, how they're lived, and how they fit into the world. At the same time, much of their love story could look like any other involving two seemingly lost souls who come together and become one. But the path, the path that brings them together Well, that is unique unto itself. That's because prior to their meeting, neither Elton nor David is ever very comfortable being an openly gay man living in a heterosexual dominated world. Because of this, both of their lives are filled with great pain and sorrow and confusion and the isolation that comes when you think differently from the pack. But whether through coincidence or fate, or sheer determination to make their lives better, they do find each other and are now in a loving relationship heading into its third decade. And the first note played in this decades-long love song would begin on the 25th of March in 1947 in the London borough of Piner, England, when Reginald Kenneth Dwight is born. He is the only child to a homemaker and a squadron leader with a Royal Air Force. As a child, Reg does not look the part of some mega rock star in waiting. He's overweight, wears glasses, and lacks much self-confidence. That is, until the age of four, when he begins playing his grandmother's piano. Within a year, his mother hears him pounding out the extremely complex piece of Walter Fell's The Skater's Waltz, all by ear. At the age of 11, he's given a scholarship to attend the prestigious Royal Academy of Music. At 15, Reg joins an R&B band called Bluesology. Although the band itself fails to offer Reg the success he covets, it does give him something else. A new name. Taking the first name from the band's saxophonist and the middle name from the vocalist, Reginald Kenneth Dwight transforms himself into Elton Hercules John. By 1970, after developing a chart-topping partnership with songwriter Bernie Taupin, 23-year-old Elton becomes one of the biggest musical acts on the planet. To date, he's won five Grammys, two Oscars, a Tony, and sold over 300 million records. Still, the Beatles sang You Can't Buy Me Love for a reason. So all that money and all that fame isn't going to help Elton find the life partner he's always dreamed of. It's going to take setting the intention and putting himself out there. The call to set up this Saturday night dinner party is a small way to do just that. And it's important to note that in his previous love-starved existence, 
Elton's love life is littered with wreckage from countless toxic and destructive romantic relationships with both men and women, almost always with someone much younger whom he would buy watches and clothes and cars. And then within a few months, they become bored with him and would leave hating Elton's guts. He even got married once in 1984 to a German recording engineer. Their marriage ended in divorce in 1988 and afterwards, Elton stated, She was the classiest woman I ever met, but it wasn't meant to be. I was living a lie. By his own admission, Elton's very good at giving love, but not very good at receiving it. But times are different now. More importantly, he's different. Elton lays out his thinking for setting up this one little dinner party that will change his life forever this way. I wanted to meet new people, so I rang up a friend in London and said, could you please rattle some new people together for a dinner here Saturday? And one of the guests rattled up on this night is a 31-year-old advertising executive who recently relocated to London from Toronto, Canada. David James Furnish is born on October 25th 1962, in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada, outside Toronto. He's the second of three sons, born to a homemaker mother and a father who's a director at the pharmaceutical giant Bristol Myers Squibb. Growing up, David does have a sense that he's gay, but in a time and place where homosexuality is, well, frowned upon to say the least, he tells no one and lives most of his childhood in a state of confusion and despair. Although there are clearly internal struggles with his sexual orientation, David does find salvation in the arts, particularly theater and music. About teenage David, his high school drama teacher would one day say, Dave was clever and full of fun. He was a student I could reliably turn to for a smart and funny answer and one who would take risks on stage, and obviously in life. But David does pay an unexpected price for his choice to embrace his artistic side, often being bullied and called names like art fag and gay boy. Undeterred by what the world may think of him, David is a youth determined to make his own way in life. After his father encourages him to work for his pocket money, he would take on jobs delivering newspapers, babysitting, mowing lawns, waiting tables, a clerk in a video store, and even working in a bottle factory. By the time college rolls around, David has put together enough of a nest egg to help pay his way. Fun aside about David's school years, he was classmates with actors Eric McCormick of Will and Grace fame and Mike Myers, Austin Powers himself. Academically, David breezes through college and graduate school that follows. But socially, the uncertainty about the true nature of his sexuality continues to cause internal conflict. He even tries to date women, rationalizing maybe he hasn't found the right one or had the right sexual experience. But deep down, David knows his truth. So when he finally comes out to the most important person in his life, his mother, her response is not quite the full support he hoped for. 
About that moment, he remembers her saying, I love you and I support you, but all I look at is a life of unhappiness, isolation, prejudice, and illness. My greatest joy in life has been having children. I think you would make a wonderful father. And it breaks my heart to think that you will never have that available to you. Feeling more or less alone in the world, David throws himself into his work. His first job after graduation is with the global advertising agency Ogilvy and Mather. At the age of 27, he requests a transfer from Toronto to London, England. The reasoning he lays out this way. I was running away because I had to come out of the closet. By the time I left Toronto, I was truly living a double life. Finally allowed to live the life of a proud gay man, London allows David to find himself and his place in the world. But the idea of ending up in a serious relationship is still far from David's mind. In fact, going into the night he's invited to Elton's house for the dinner party, his longest relationship is still with a woman. So the very thought that David would give his heart to a mega-famous musician 15 years his senior seems about as likely as a crocodile actually rocking. David's thinking going into the night is a pretty simple one. It'll just be another dull evening. He'll say some hellos, have some dinner, then say goodbye to the Yellowbrook Road as soon as possible. But you know how the old saying goes for moments like this. You plan, God laughs. And almost immediately after walking into Elton's home, the almighty laughter begins. That's because Elton feels an instantaneous connection to the shy, well-dressed Canadian. This initial attraction is mutual too, as David also finds himself drawn to the host of the party. Needless to say, David does not duck out early, and after a night full of good times and wonderful conversations, Elton breaks away from the other guests and surreptitiously asks David for his phone number. Not only did Elton call the very next day, but that same evening on Halloween night, David returns to Elton's home for some Chinese takeout. Though in typical rocker fashion, it's takeout from the trendy London restaurant Mr. Chow's. Looking back at that time, Elton explains his excitement about meeting someone like David. He had a real job, his own apartment, a car. He was independent. I didn't need to take care of him. I thought, God, this is new territory for me. Someone wants to be with me just because he likes me. I knew he was the one because he's not afraid of me. He always tells me exactly what he thinks. The courtship between Elton and David moves pretty fast. And before long, the young Canadian moves into the British pop star's mansion and into his social circle. David even finally comes out to both of his parents, who accept the relationship in open arms. His mother says this, Finally, you are happy. I always wanted you to share your life with someone and to be happy and get the love and support that I got from my marriage. But as you might expect, there's a learning curve when a regular Joe like David starts dating someone who was knighted by the Queen of England. At first, David keeps his advertising job. But that becomes problematic when you're in a relationship with someone who travels constantly like Elton. David eventually makes the tough choice to leave his job 
and reinvent himself, both professionally and personally. David would later describe those first years together this way. If I'm being totally honest, the balance of power was different to the way it is now. Everything was so new to me. When you're in a relationship with a very famous person, you have to make compromises. In 1995, just two years after they first meet, David begins a career in filmmaking, and his first big project is a documentary film that has him turning the camera on Elton himself. You see, Elton is about to embark on a two-year global tour, and he allows David to capture it all. The concerts, the dramatic moments backstage, the intimacy of hotel rooms. He's even there when Elton receives his first Academy Award. David has full and unfettered access to Elton and his musical world. Access that has never been granted to anyone else before. One might expect that a project like this between two lovers would be some kind of self-serving fluff piece, but that's not the case here. As the lone cameraman and crew member, David is a fly on the wall and has the ability to capture the most intimate of moments. At times, as David interviews Elton, it almost seems as if he's asking the questions both as a producer and as a boyfriend. As if the answers could make both good sound bites and also give him more insight into who he's actually dating. The final result of all that filming is the 1997 documentary, Elton John, Tantrums and Tiaras. And the kind of honesty we see in the final film gives us a rare glimpse into Elton's complex and flamboyant personality as well as Elton and David's relationship as a whole. Plus, we know that since Elton throws enough tantrums on screen to have the word tantrum put in the film's actual title, that David not only must be on the receiving end of many of these tantrums in real life, but also that he's calm enough and understanding enough to be able to tolerate and forgive them. We also learn that Elton must trust David a lot to allow him to film these extremely personal and not always flattering moments of his life. I'd like to point out that what most good relationships have are partners who make each other better and allow each individual to move forward and grow. And according to Elton in this interview about the film, David's filmmaking did just that. Everyone around me thought I was insane to put it out, but I loved its honesty. It was also David's greatest gift to me. He showed me who I was and how much I needed to change. I watch it every three years. Over the next decade, Elton continues to make music, David makes more films, and their relationship solidifies to the point where at yet another dinner party, 12 years after their fateful meeting, Elton pops the question. Although same-sex marriages are not legal in the UK at this time, civil partnerships are. So on December 21st, 2005, Elton and David are one of the first couples in the UK to make their love legal in the eyes of the law. But arguably the most remarkable part of their love story is their transition into parenthood. Elton is 61 years old when their visit to an orphanage for HIV-positive children in Ukraine leads to them trying to adopt a 14-month-old boy they become attached to. Deemed too old and in a gay marriage, which is not legally recognized in Ukraine, Elton and David are denied. Though Elton does say, to this day, he and David still provide for the boy and his sibling. Elton has always been honest about his desire, 
or lack thereof, to have children. Around this time, he says, I always said no to having kids because I'm too old, too set in my ways, too selfish. The lifestyle doesn't suit me. All that began to shift the day I met David in October of 1993. So, the couple alters the trajectory of their lives forever when they decide to have children of their own. Although there are many options to bring a child into their fold, they choose to go with a surrogate who will be inseminated with both of their sperm so they each have an equal opportunity to be the father. On Christmas Day, 2010, their first child is born. Son Zachary, Jackson, Levon, Furnish John. He is followed by their second son, Elijah, Joseph, Daniel, Furnish John, on January 11, 2013, via the same surrogate. To this day, Elton and David do not know which of them is the biological parent to which child. And just in case you missed the Elton John musical Easter eggs in their names, Levon, one of Zachary's middle names, is of course the name of Elton's 1971 hit, As for baby Elijah, well, he got the song Daniel embedded into his name. And in yet another way to stamp music even further into their family, Lady Gaga is the godmother to both boys, who of course then call her their Gaga mother. With their union bonded forever by the welcoming of their two beautiful boys, It's only fitting that the rest of the world would soon catch up to the genuineness of loving relationships like theirs. So in 2014, nine years to the date after their civil partnership ceremony and over two decades after they first met, the legalization of same-sex marriage is finally ratified in the UK, allowing Sir Elton John and David Furnish to legally tie the knot. The wedding is followed by a lavish affair at their Berkshire mansion, attended by stars like David and Victoria Beckham, musician Ed Sheeran, Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne, Hugh Grant, and Elizabeth Hurley. And for those of you who must know it all, the wedding lunch menu included wild mushroom soup and truffle cream for appetizers, beef short ribs and caramelized onion pie, roasted potatoes, parsnips, and horseradish butter for the main course, and warm chocolate pudding, vanilla ice cream, and of course, wedding cake for dessert. Perhaps one of the most revealing things about the lasting relationship between Elton and David is their ritual of giving each other a handwritten love note every single Saturday. And yes, that's every Saturday they've been together for almost 30 years. As of the recording of this podcast, That makes 1,426 cards each. So altogether, that's 2,848 cards exchanged. David explains the rationale this way. Every Saturday, we give each other an anniversary card because we met on a Saturday. So we write down in a little card that you put next to the bed, happy anniversary. And you write about the week that's passed and the week that's coming and you connect and you tell each other you love each other. And obviously they're not always in the same house or even on the same continent at times, but still they write these cards. If they are apart, they send the card via a courier service. 
If that's not feasible, then they fax it because at least they can still see the handwriting. When asked, Elton points out that these cards are more than some ritual or some color by numbers romantic gesture. He says, We go through difficulties as much as anyone else does in a relationship, but we sort through it by communication. And one way to communicate is to write down on a piece of paper or a card how you're feeling. The fact that we do it religiously every Saturday has been a very powerful bonding thing for us. What's most important is that no matter how the message is sent, it still appears in writing. And amazingly, they've saved every single one of these cards, making this ritual not only romantic, but also historic, in the sense that they now have a written history of their love. And I don't think it's hyperbole to say that Elton and David's union is historic, not just because of who Elton is, but because of what the two men have done together. There's all the creative projects, the charitable work they've done, the groundbreaking same-sex marriage, and of course, the two beautiful children. Elton and David may have written a love story which does not follow a conventional path, but that's also what makes it so special, so great. Now into his 70s, but ever the showman, we'll leave it to Elton to articulate just how he feels about his amazing but unexpected love story. If you'd have said to me 10 years ago, I'd be married to the man I love and have two beautiful children, I would have said you put acid in my drink. But life throws you challenges and life throws you curveballs. Great curveballs. How do we get so brave? How do we get, how do we get so brave? Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. Or like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. And if you're a smart, successful single who's looking to find your forever relationship and want to create your own great love story, go to amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. Amy's programs help you break unhealthy dating beliefs, attitudes, and patterns through live virtual group coaching, private coaching, video lessons, and breakthrough exercises. Schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast and you'll receive special discounts on her various programs. See you next time on the world's greatest real life love stories.